Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 6, Episode 22, titled Rule 610. In this week's episode, we covered the second point of error in Sandy's recently filed appeals brief. And that point of error was concerning the cross-examination of Rocio Reeb, who you've heard from here on the show before. During Rocio's cross-examination, the allegation by Max Seacrest is that Colleen Barnett violated Sandy's constitutional right by bringing in her religion in an effort to turn or prejudice the jury against Sandy. The only way that I could really get across to you how things actually went at trial was to read you the cross-examination in its entirety, which is what we did in this week's episode. And from what I've seen on social media, it definitely caused quite a stir, so I'm sure we have a lot of questions. Let's go ahead and get right into them. All right, Bob, let's do this. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, our first question comes from Richard. Do you believe that Barnett came up with the religion motive in the middle of the trial like she said? She seemed to have quite a bit of information for having come up with that in the middle of a trial. No, to be honest, I, I don't believe that at all. Uh, and I had never heard that. She's never said that before that I'm aware of prior to her appearance on the recent 2020 episode. And that's when she said, go back and listen to her interviews from when she did Dateline, uh, you know, whatever it was. It's going on a year ago now compared to 2020. And in between there, of course, we did our podcast. We were six months into our podcast when she did the interviews with 2020. So things have changed. So now a lot of misinformation by the time that interview was done had been put out to the public. And so I I feel like she's kind of putting out fires and trying to kind of change the narrative a little bit in that interview because she knows that some of this information is out there that hadn't been reported on prior to that. But that's a really good, it was Richard with that question? That was Richard. That's a really good question because the first thing I thought was bullshit. You know, when she says that I thought of this motive in the middle of trial, she was quoting Bible verses, you know, and she was, she was clearly reading, you know, we can't see her, but she, she's reading 
what sound like direct quotes from the religious tenets of the Jehovah's Witnesses, along with quoting scripture to back up her claim. So clearly there was preparation done in order to do this when Rocio was on the stand. Now, I don't know that maybe she necessarily knew when she was going to bring this in, but she had definitely researched the Jehovah's Witnesses prior to Rocia Reeb coming up on the stand. And then, you know, as you saw, she just went in a completely different direction. She was just a character witness and she just attacked and attacked and attacked from question number three all the way through to the end. Nothing but the Jehovah's Witness religion. Okay, our next question comes from Robin. If religious beliefs do play into motive in this case, can it be used by the prosecution or is it always off limits? I'm curious as to what the prosecution's response could be to this point in the appeals process. I think that, and again, I'm definitely not a lawyer, uh, but you know, I, I researched a lot of the case law that was cited by Max Seacrest in the appeal brief, and there are times, there, there was some case law quoted by Mac where religion was brought in, and what he was trying to show there was, yes, sometimes it's okay, but only in this circumstance. And I don't have those citations right in front of me, but I remember one of the, the footnotes said it was allowed by the Supreme Court for it to take place or for it to occur in this one case. But that was because the religion was brought in during direct examination, which kind of opens it up during cross-examination. Or if the, the religion speaks to not necessarily motive, but but there's an evidentiary value in it. And then he swings back into Texas Rule of Evidence 610, which states that you cannot bring in someone's religion for the purpose of, of prejudicing the jury against that witness. Or in this case, you know, Sandy didn't take the stand. So her her religion couldn't be attacked on the stand in front of the jury. So Barnett used the character witness who happens to be of the same faith to go after the Jehovah's Witness religion to get all of that into the jury's heads so that she could kind of wrap it up into a nice neat ball and closing arguments when she presents this was her motive for doing that. But I think that there are times when it's okay to bring religion in, but it, there has to be a pretty specific set of circumstances for that to happen. And I don't believe they were present here. Uh, it seemed very clear to me the entire point, and this is just my opinion. So you, and, and you heard it all, and it's on our website for you to read it if you want to read it. I don't see any purpose in that line of questioning at all other than to smear the Jehovah's Witness religion. You know, there was the bit in there about divorce, and you could tell she was working towards that because she wouldn't let Rocio finish a sentence. She wouldn't let her fully answer a question. Uh, she only wanted to get in what she wanted in, which isn't uncommon for any defense or prosecution to do. But that was a small portion of that. I think it had, it had a lot more to do with just letting the jury... I don't want to say letting them know what the the tenets of the religion are, but basically that's it. She was trying to turn them against them. She was, I think, she was betting on the fact that this jury would not appreciate the the Jehovah's Witness faith. You know, she made it sound like they're crazy, they're in a cult, or whatever. And I think that was the only purpose. I can't see any other purpose for her questioning Rocia the way that she did. Haley says, if I heard correctly, there was testimony that Jim and Sandy had celebrated a birthday. Barnett mentioned this herself in the cross-examination we heard today. Does this not go against her own insinuation that Jim and Sandy followed their religion to the letter? It does. There's so many things that are contradictory. I mean, we've even talked about she didn't want to get a divorce because it's a sin, but she would commit murder in order to protect it. And, and then there's, of course, Sandy's very best friends, Marla and Patsy, that we had on the show during the Jim's Legacy episode. They're very, very close to... Sandy, people that she hung out with all the time, and they're not Jehovah's Witnesses. 
so you know there's there's all sorts of things that Sandy and Jim did where they you know what they the Jehovah's Witnesses consider you know I think it was called matters of the conscious where you have to kind of decide if you feel convicted to do or not to do something they certainly weren't following the letter of everything that was supposed to be done you know even even with their association with uh, uh Stephanie who we had on was a disassociated member and Sandy still welcomed her into her family you know there was there was lots of things she did so there's all kinds of things that contradict the idea of of her killing her husband because of the church it's 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 a, it's a ridiculous argument to me it has been since the very beginning this next one's from Amanda is it really true that the Jehovah's Witnesses still have to disassociate I remember in 1990 having two separate funerals for my grandpa, one for witnesses and the other for excommunicated family. But around eight years ago, that side of the family contacted me for communication and visits. They are pretty devout to my knowledge, but I am embarrassed to straight ask them about this. I mean, I'm certainly no expert on the Jehovah's Witnesses' faith, but to my understanding uh, from the few people that I, and I've talked to actually quite a few people regarding a lot of these issues, especially early in the season. And as far as I know, yeah, they still do disassociation and even disfellowship or, you know, they were, what I think was commonly referred to as like someone is shunned is kind of a way layman would, that doesn't know much about it would refer to it uh, as from what, those people that I've spoken to. I don't think the faith is as strict as people believe it is. Rocio kept saying it's not a black or white issue. It's not a black or white issue. And wanting to explain during cross-examination was because there's a lot of things that they consider a matter of the conscious, where it's like this is, um, you know, she kept calling them rules, but I don't think it's necessarily rules. But you know, this is what the the faith believes we should be doing, and and, the, and what the elders are trying to guide people toward. But it, it's kind of between you and God whether or not you want to do one thing or another. Look at the fact that you know Rocio seems to be a very devout Jehovah's Witness. She's been in the faith for decades. And, and of course, she's very, very close friends with Sandy, who she knows has very, very close friends who are not part of the Jehovah's Witnesses. So I believe it's, it's something that's still done, but it could just be in, in her case that, you know, her family is just like, you know, this, they prayed on it or whatever, and they've decided that for them, that's okay, that they want to, that they want to have that, that relationship with their family. I don't, I don't know. And her second question is, if Barnett was going to use religion as motive, wouldn't she be obligated to also prove the marriage was in trouble? Well, yeah, I mean, that goes to anything when it comes to motive. But this whole trial, the, the state, in my opinion, the state's entire case is all smoke and mirrors. You know, it, it's let me talk, you know, when Rocio's on the stand, let me talk about the Jehovah's Witnesses faith and the, the quote unquote weird things about their faith or, or hoping that the jury would receive those that way. And was all like working up to her being able to say in closing arguments that she wanted a divorce. If she wanted a divorce, then she couldn't get a divorce because she wouldn't be able to hang out with her friends. When the reality of it, none of that is in, in evidence. The problem is in Texas, it's not a requirement for the prosecution to have to prove motive. They don't, she didn't, she never had to prove a motive. But I think that in this case, she knew, and rightly so, it's going to be really hard to get a jury to convict someone where if you consider Everything Colleen Barnett told us on this show as far as the strengths of her case, if you consider all of those things to be true, even though some of them we've proven are not true, but if you say that they're all true and the jury believed them all, but you can't explain to the jury any reason why Sandy would have done this, I don't think she gets a conviction. There was nothing there. With the strongest points of the case, there's still no evidence linking Sandy to the actual crime. 
And then if a jury, even though she doesn't have to prove motive, if the jury sees like this was a loving relationship, nobody wanted a divorce. No one was cheating on anyone. There wasn't a massive life insurance policy. There was no need for money, which all of that is the reality of the situation. Then I don't think I don't think there's a jury out there that's going to convict. So I think that that Barnett was smart enough to know that I've got to at least put something in their heads to make them believe there was a reason for Sandy Melgar to do this. And and she grabbed it, whatever straw she could grab at. I've I've never seen a case actually that was this light on motive where you couldn't just you couldn't even make up a reason why Sandy Melgar would do this. But in fact, that's what she tried to do. But yeah, there are standards on motive. They were covered in point of error number one in the uh, legally insufficient evidence point of error from the, the appeal. And we addressed motive a little bit there. And regarding that, there you have to prove, because we were talking about the life insurance, you can't assume it's not okay legally for the jury to just assume that Sandy knew that there was a life insurance policy and knew she was a beneficiary. That has to be proven through the evidence in order to be considered as motive. And so this is the same thing. Just because, you know, she thinks she has this theory that if she got divorced, she'd be she'd be excommunicated, wouldn't be able to hang out with her friends. You can jump back, as as she correctly stated here in her question. You 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 have to prove that there was a problem with the marriage to begin with. You have to prove that there's any evidence that either of the two wanted a divorce. And she absolutely did not do that. With the trial record, if you read it all, there is absolutely nothing, not a prosecution witness, not a defense witness, that put forth any signs or indicators that Sandy and Jim had anything other than a wonderful, loving, respectful relationship. Catherine says, are there any updates on the familiar crimes in the close neighborhoods to the Melgar home? Is it possible to get DNA from those cases to compare now that the DA and police are open to reviewing Sandy's new evidence you find? Have they been solved? Can the funds you raised go towards a PI to follow up on these? So there is more information that we have right now. We're still working on that angle. There's a couple of particular home invasions we're very interested in. And, and so, the, so we're, we're gathering more information on that. It'll be available to you soon, and we'll probably need some help from you guys soon on some of that. As far as the DNA thing goes, we believe there is some DNA available. There was a law passed. I don't have it right in front of me, but there was a law passed, I want to say 2012, 2013-ish, uh, off the top of my head, where anybody who gets convicted of a felony has to submit their, their DNA into CODIS, put it into the system which means that that DNA would be available. But, you know, the, the one particular one, the Kingwood home invasion, there was, I think, five people, four or five people that were involved in that, according to the witnesses. One was caught, and I believe it was a female, and I believe she eventually flipped on somebody else. I think she ended up getting deported, but there were still um, several people out of that group that weren't caught. As far as using the reward fund for a PI to do that, if need be, but remember, the defense team does have a PI. We do a lot of that work. There's a lot of different ways to get DNA from people and stuff, and sometimes it's just Mike and I. We go down and and do what we got to do to get that done. I, I guess that's not a, that's not nearly the answer they were looking for. Yes, that's an angle we're looking at. We're going to be getting into alternate suspects very soon. Uh, I, I think we're going to maybe change things up a little bit from normal because we still have a lot of trial to go through. But there are also some some new points that I want to cover uh, as far as new investigative stuff. So we may start kind of weaving back and forth. You know, as we'll, we'll cover new things as they come along and then you know we'll bounce back you know when when we kind of have kind of a lull and that we'll bounce back into filling in the blanks and the trial transcripts and the and the things that have happened in between there that we we kind of have, have skimmed over to this point but 
that's one of the things we're working on. Yes, is is, is researching much further into those other home invasions. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Ah, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Catherine says, based on posts over the last few days, I think we need to talk about TVs. What do you think, Bob? Yeah, actually, I had pulled this up together. I was going to bring this up if you didn't, uh, but I saw that on the post. So uh, we've learned some new information over the week, and it's been a collective effort from listener it was brought to our attention by listener bethany on the fan page who was i think i think she was relaying stuff to us that was discussions that were happening uh, on a different page about the tv so remember we had liz on a few weeks ago uh talking about the things that were found missing from the crime scene one of the things and we all know this was the tv from the master bedroom was missing and and liz said we had we gave the police the receipt for that tv uh and in that discussion you know someone had mentioned well, there's also what appears to be a small flat screen TV on a shelf in the office. And could that be the TV? Could it have been moved in there? And she said, no, there were two TVs, TV slash computer monitors. They could be used for either one. Uh, there were two TVs, but it was a different size and brand, the one that was in the, the office. Well, since then, uh, Bethany brought to my attention. Then uh, listener Adam jumped into that discussion as well. And I brought in listener Don, uh, who's an engineer, to kind of help us with some of this, these things. They had found in there's there's only one picture of the TV in the office. You know, just again, thanks a lot, Maurice. He didn't take any photos of it. It just it was it was a kind of caught in the side of a photo from an angle. You can see there's a flat, what appears to be a flat screen TV. It is a flat screen TV uh, in it. And uh, some listeners had taken and searched the model of the TV from the receipt that was provided to the police to see what that model looked like. It was a 32-inch Sylvania uh, television, flat-screen TV. And when they bring it up, you can see the base of the TV in this photo. And the two bases looked very, very similar. Again, it's hard to tell because it was at a funny angle, but they looked very, very similar. I wasn't too concerned about that because, you know, it's not that uncommon to have, you know, a flat, rounded, with a rounded edge base on the front of it, uh, TV back in, in, in that era around 2011, 2012. And then in, in, while looking at those photos, I thought, well, we can figure this out right now because now that we know the exact model of the TV, we can get the dimensions of it. So we went, uh, I went to their website and got the dimensions and the TV was, I think, like 20, the, it was a 32 inch TV and the dimensions of the screen were like 20.5 inches plus the the height of the stand, which we later figured out was with the stand, it was a total of like 22.2 inches tall, something like that. Well, and this TV in this photo was pretty tight, so it's sitting on a shelf, and then the top of it is almost touching the shelf above it. And then on, on the side of the shelf, it, you know any shelf that you've 
you've ever had, like the mic, like the one we have right over here. You can adjust the height of the shelves. They've got little holes for the peg. You put pegs in there. Right. Yeah. And so, and I could see, well, we can count. There's 17 pegs between the two shelves. And so that's 18 spaces, you know, so there's a space, then a peg and so on and so forth all the way up to the top. And so it looked at me like those pegs were probably about an inch apart, which means the total height of that shelf would be 18 inches. Since we know the TV is 22 inches, we can pretty definitively say that's not a 32-inch TV in there. It can't be that TV. But then I tagged in uh, Don McElhaney, who is kind of our resident engineer that is pretty good about researching and calculating, figuring things like that out, and asked him, can you do any scaling with anything we see in this photo? And Don was able to find there's actually a standard spacing for those dowel holes. You know, and, and it wasn't an inch. And, and I think Adam had chimed in at that point, too, and said, you know, but yeah, but what if they're an inch and a quarter? then it would be perfect. And that's not a lot of difference there. So Don finds out, and it was in centimeters, but essentially the pegs were about an inch and a quarter apart is the standard size. If that's the standard size, then it would be like 22.4 inches between the shelves. It's a 22.2 inch TV. You can see the TV is fitting in there just about perfectly. Long story short, there's somebody somebody put on the the thread that like I, all this engineering stuff. I don't know what's going on. Long story short, I think that that we can. I'm comfortable saying we can definitively say that the TV from the receipt that was provided by the family is was not the TV from the bedroom. It was in fact the TV that was in the office at that time. That that you know it it looks like it. The size is right. Everything points to. The TV from Aaron's for the th the 32 in Sylvania was, in fact, the TV from the office. Now, the, the issue then gets confused because Liz, over time, thought, you know, it's because she wasn't directly involved in this. I thought that Liz is the one that actually handed the receipt to the police. That's not what happened. It was Sandy who gave the receipt to her lawyer and had her lawyer pass it on to the police. Um, looking here, it was it was in April when she did that. Because you know they were looking for any any documentation for things that were missing that hadn't already been. Because Liz did give them the receipts. I think it was in the police report the day that she was there with the police for some tools and there were some other items. But the TV was not one of the receipts provided to them at that point. This was provided later, and it's just you know over time this kind of becomes. You think they gave the receipt? There's a TV missing. It's the receipt for the TV. Uh, but as Liz said, there were two TVs now. So. Now we're kind of we got to kind of go back and it's back to the drawing board a little bit with this TV now. And, and there's there's kind of really two schools of thought here. One school of thought for well, I won't even say the people that maybe lean towards Sandy being guilty because it, that doesn't necessarily need to be true. Just one school of thought is there never was two TVs. There was only one. And it was the TV that was nor maybe normally kept in the bedroom, but it had been moved into the office for some reason. And so there was meaning there wasn't a TV stolen. And then the other side of that, which is after, you know, after continuing to research this based on this discussion is, as was stated by Liz back, you know, when we talked to her a few weeks ago, there was always two TVs. So all that really happened here was they provided a, a receipt for a TV, but that receipt was for the wrong TV. They didn't have the TV for the receipt in the bedroom. The only receipt they had was for the one that was in the office or that's the one that they found. And and then uh, listener Sharon, I think, shared, and this is part of the data dump that came in last month from uh, Harris County. We actually have the email from Sandy's lawyer in April, Nick Owesi, 
I think I hopefully I'm pronouncing that right, uh, to Detective Corazal, and it was on April 1st, and it says, please find attached the TV receipt provided by the family. This TV was in their home at the time of the incident, but they cannot confirm that it was in the master bedroom. So when we go all the way back to the beginning of this issue with the TV, we find that it was never provided as the receipt for the TV in the bedroom. They were looking for receipts. Sandy found a receipt for a TV, but when she turned it over, she said, I'm not sure. I don't know which, because Jim is the one that did these purchases for the TV, for really most of everything, it sounds like, as far as you know, technical stuff in the house. And so she knew this was a receipt for a TV, but she didn't know which TV it was for. And so she had provided that to, and of course, everything from the house had been boxed up and moved out already by then. So the receipt that was provided was always just as this is a TV that was in the house at the time of the murder, but we're not sure if it's the, the one from the master bedroom. So when we look a little bit further, why, aside from the fact that the family has said there was a TV there, why do we think there was a TV there? Well, we have a table in the bedroom that's, that's turned at an angle towards the bed and the, the treadmill that's empty. Every flat surface in that room has stuff all over it. That one is empty. And there's a picture that was, you know, a frame that's on the floor upside down next to it. It had been knocked off, clearly been knocked off of it. We've got the antenna with the cable running over to the TV and the cable's just hanging there. And of course, and, and, and understand, I realize there's arguments to the other side of this too. People say, well, maybe there was something wrong with the TV and Jim had disconnected and moved it. Possibly, but why leave the antenna there? You know, it'd be just as easy to grab the antenna with it and move it instead of disconnecting it and leaving the wire just hanging there like that. And you can't vacuum with the wire in the way, all that. So I, I don't particularly buy that, but it's it's an argument. Uh, but so we have the antenna with the cord leading to where the TV is. No TV there. And then remember the S-video cable that uh, is showing from behind there, too, which an S-video cable was used to connect a DVD player to a TV. Well, and that was one of the big clues to me to say that there was a different TV, not the TV that was found in the office in that location. because. I didn't know until we dug into the product specs of that Sylvania 32-inch TV is that that TV had a built-in DVD player. DVDs would just slide into the top of it. So if that had been the TV that was in the bedroom, there would have been no need to have a DVD player in the bedroom. So there was supposedly, reportedly, a DVD player stolen along with that TV. There's a cord hanging there, an S-video cord. There's no reason to have a DVD player hooked up to a TV that has a built-in DVD player. Uh, and then we also have, which we haven't got into in the, in the main episodes yet, uh, but I was just reading today the testimony of Tammy Armstrong, who was one of Sandy's really good friends. She was the one, her and her husband were the ones that picked Sandy up uh, when she got back from her police interrogation in the early morning hours of that Monday. Uh, very good friends of Sandy's. Uh, had been in her house, testified she'd been in her bedroom and her bathroom many, many times. And she confirmed there was normally a TV on that nightstand that, that Sandy used to work out on in the bedroom. You know, when she would use either the treadmill or she said if she wasn't feeling well enough to do, because she would use her Xbox in the living room sometimes to work out too, she said in her testimony. But she also confirmed. So Liz says there was a TV in the bedroom. There was two TVs. Tammy says there was a TV in the bedroom. The TV that's in the office has a built-in DVD player, and there was uh, reportedly a DVD player hooked up to the TV that was in the bedroom. You still have the antenna with the cord going to it, and then remember, the drawer of that of that little table was pulled out, uh, either as part of staging, depending on how you believe, or from the actual home invaders looking to see what was in there. And inside there, we see a bunch of workout DVDs 
uh, in there. So again, indicating there's normally a TV there. That's why all those workout DVDs are there. And we can go even further with that. And one of the big indicators to me of Sandy telling the truth in her police interrogation was when they're talking to her about, you know, where did you take your clothes off? Where did you take your coat off? Where did you take your boots off? And she says, I took my boots off in the in the bedroom by the TV. Again, at the point, at that point, for me, that was important because you could tell she's flowing. She's giving no indicators of deception there. And it seemed to me that she didn't realize the TV was missing. In her mind, the TV was still there. The TV was there when she took her boots off. So all of that together, mixed with the fact that we know, or according to Liz, there always were two TVs. And when Sandy provided that receipt, she couldn't confirm it was the receipt for the TV from the bedroom. She just knew it was for a TV. My conclusion on this is that there was a different TV in that bedroom. Again, that's that's up for debate. I know there's certain people that aren't that aren't are going to go with either as part of so. I, I guess let's talk about that. Why would there not be a TV there and have it be in the office? So again, one theory was Jim had moved it there at some point. Maybe something was wrong with it or whatever, uh, and it wasn't in the bedroom. If that's the case, then Sandy did in, in uh, a miraculous job of feigning that she didn't know the TV was there anymore. And even when Jim Fitzgerald watched her video, no sign of deception there. She's in, and, and it's a good way for the officers to get it in during the interrogation. You know, it's it's in the middle of the interview phase, which is before interrogation. It's not accusatory. You're just filling in the blanks. You're asking kind of seemingly innocuous questions, looking for clues. And during that phase, she says, I took my boots off by the TV. Uh, so she either she was feigning that if she's the one that moved it there or if Jim had moved it, they say maybe she had forgotten or whatever, didn't know it was there. None of that seems to add up to me or uh, it was suggested to me that she could have moved it as part of the staging to make it look like they were robbed, you know, after the murder. But then again, that's that makes zero sense whatsoever than as to try to make it look like there was a robbery to go through the trouble of disconnecting the TV and then moving it 15 feet away into another room. And then tucking it into a, a a shelf behind another TV that's kind of hard to get to, that doesn't add up to me. So you have to make your own decisions. Those are kind of the facts out there that you know we know that the the TV in the office. We won't say we know. I I believe with ninety nine percent assurity the TV in the office is the TV from the receipt. I believe there was a different TV that was in the bedroom that was taken. It just wasn't the one for that receipt. And again, some people believe that there was ever there was only ever was one TV and it was moved. But those are the facts as far as that's that's hopefully catches everybody up who wasn't on social media and following that discussion on the Truth and Justice fan page. Hello, it is Ryan. And I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. All right, Stephanie says, is Sandy able to answer simple questions like, did you or Jim have money in your wallet that night? Or do you believe that money was taken that night? Or was there a TV in the bedroom and an Xbox in the living room? It just seems like some of these could be answered by her. 
Yeah, I think so. As a matter of fact, we were one of the re- we're recording this episode later than usual because I was hoping to get a call from Sandy today. Um, and I have actually sitting in front of me my list of questions to ask her. So, yeah, hopefully we will be able to get those answers from Sandy. Her situation in the medical unit is a little different than anyone else we've dealt with as far as phone calls. Uh, and that being that it is quieter. And, we, and as you heard, we had a little clip of her in uh, this week's episode uh, explaining that she was actually interrogated for quite a bit longer after we saw the recording stop. But the the issue they have is they're very restrictive on when she can call and for how long. And so Sandy has a job now. So she in the in the medical unit, she folds laundry and she does it two days a week. And those days rotate. Some days it's Mondays and Wednesdays. Some days it's Tuesdays and Thursdays. And then also when she calls, there's only certain times when they can get to the phone and call. And they only give them, I think, what you say, a 15 minute window? Yeah, I think it was 15 minutes to get through. Yeah, to get through or they they boot them off. So what had happened is she was scheduled to call me uh, last week at noon and when she actually got an opportunity because there were people waiting in line to call, when she got her opportunity to come make the call it was at 1240. I wasn't in the studio. I wasn't home and so I answered the call but I was like can you call me back in 20 minutes when I get back and so we can can talk on on the studio line and she said, I, I can't. Once they go in and they're going to make a call, they give them 15 minutes and then they have to get out and go to the back of the line or whatever it is. So, um, but yeah, w- when we talked to Sandy, I've got several of these just simple questions. I did ask her last week when we talked little things like the, um, I don't know if any of you have noticed, but if you look at the crime scene photos, a lot of the clothes hangers have like ribbon hanging off of them. There's the one that's still weird. She couldn't explain. She had no idea why. There was a hanger hanging from the photo behind the table where the TV was. She couldn't explain that. She has no idea why that was there, but that one had a ribbon hanging off of it. There's one in her closet that had a ribbon hanging off of it. She wasn't sure about that either. She's a, she, her only explanation was maybe that's something the dry cleaners did because they used the dry cleaners for, uh, she said, mostly gym stuff, gym shirts and some of her things. Maybe that was something they, that was put on by the dry cleaner. She wasn't sure, but she was definitely as baffled as we were about the the hanger on the on the on the picture behind where the TV belonged in the bedroom. Uh, I asked her about the pillow in the hallway. She had no idea about the pillow. So so she's able to you know, answer some of these questions. It's just we also whereas if I, when I was talking to uh, Jesse or who I did speak to today by the way, and Jesse's doing he sounded really good today um, right before we recorded here. That also pushed us back, Jesse Eldridge. But uh, when we talked to Jesse or Ed. You know, they had the time limit on the phone, but they could always just call right back. So if I ran out of time when I was talking to Jesse, he can just hang up and call me right back because there's a there used to be 20. Now it's a 30 minute time limit where Sandy's at. That's not the case. When your time limits up, you're done and you got to leave. You got 15 minutes to make your call. You get your 30 minutes for your call and then you're done. I don't know when she can call back again. But anyway, long answer, short question. But yeah, we're going to be hopefully hearing from Sandy soon and she'll be hopefully answering some of these questions. Laura says, was Sandy disassociated after being convicted of murder, or is the church standing behind her? Hmm. I That's a good question. I don't know. I'm not real sure. I know that Sandy has close friends, like Rocio, who's, who are Jehovah's Witnesses that certainly stand behind her. And I know there's other friends that are Jehovah's Witnesses that also stand behind her. But as far as the church in general, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. S says, what, if anything, is done to prevent investigators that decide what happened and investigate only to fit that narrative from doing it ever again? Through season five, I kept thinking, how many other people did these investigators target after the West Memphis Three? I'm coming back to this with Sandy, too. Will there be any sanction for them once she's proven to be wrongfully convicted? Will it be more difficult for them to do this in the future? Is there anything we can do as citizens to help change the system so that this kind of thing happens less often? 
there won't be any sanctions put on, and unless it was something that was egregious malfeasance, which is almost impossible to to prove. No, so prosecutors and law enforcement typically have immunity to an extent against you know even even being sued or being punished for wrongful convictions. And we've talked about this before in other seasons. It sucks on on the face of what we do that you know we want these prosecutors to pay. But you got to remember that. 95% of prosecutors and 95% or more of cops are good people doing the best to protect us. And they have to have that immunity so they can do their jobs. Imagine if every single person, they could get sued constantly. Think about how expensive medical coverage for anything is in the United States. A lot of that has to do with the fact that hospitals and doctors get sued constantly. And it's a big part of the inflation into our healthcare costs would be the same thing not that it's cost but it would be it would be very expensive for these government agencies if they were open to that all the time so there's a, there's an immunity there that allows them to do their jobs and on paper the way the system works is if they make a mistake that's what the appeals process is for and we can undo it you know forget the fact that the appeals process works less than 1% of the time and you know it takes 20 years when it does work in most cases there wouldn't be any sanctions from it unless again there was like intentional misfeasance you know if, if if a police officer you can you can prove that they willfully and intentionally did something wrong but if it's just mistakes or incompetence or, or they had tunnel vision whatever it was it's typically not going to result in any kind of negative consequence for the officer as citizens what we can do is what we're doing right now which is talk about it put it out there don't let them get away with it and make sure everyone knows when this is happening to people because as I've said many, many times before, if we accomplish no other goal with truth and justice than to have five years from now when new officers or new detectives are going through their training academy for their instructor to tell them, I want you to do your job every day like some asshole podcaster is going to tell the whole world about every mistake you ever made. And it's it's not to, again, I'm I'm nobody's a bigger supporter of law enforcement than me. A lot of my friends are cops. But, you know, the, it, and I somebody just asked me the other day, on the fan page kind of related to this. I don't remember what they were asking. How can I get somebody to work with me or do something when all of the, you know, the cops and prosecutors in Texas hate me because I've been down there working on cases for the last few years. I told them, was like, you've got it all wrong. We have a lot of times when you hear me say something like we have a, we have a source that says this, or, you know, we're told by somebody, an anonymous source, that's usually a cop or a prosecutor from Texas. Because what people don't realize is nobody hates a dirty cop more than a good cop. And nobody hates a dirty prosecutor more than a good prosecutor because it soils their good name. And so so we have a lot of respect for prosecutors and for police officers, but do your damn job right because you have people's lives in your hands. So that's what we're doing is, is you know, if there's something like what happened to Sandy Melgar, Sandy Melgar, in my opinion, is 100% innocent. There was never a case against her. Several prosecutors before Barnett agreed there was no case against Sandy, and at trial there just there there was no evidence. It's it's baffling that she was convicted. Uh, she's an innocent person. This should have never happened to her. And whether you believe she's innocent or guilty, there's no denying when you look at the investigation and you look at the things that weren't investigated in this case, there is no denying that this was a suspect-driven investigation. They decided right away. Sandy was the suspect, which I don't fault them for that. There's circumstances there. You definitely look at the family first. Sandy should have been the first suspect they looked at. But once they decided she was the suspect, they never looked for anything else other 
than her being the killer. And that's how these wrongful convictions happen. So, yeah. So if we can, because of what we're doing, if when new detectives are being trained, they're told, look, we live in a world now where everybody and their brother, anybody with an iPhone can make a podcast and people will listen to it. We live in a world now where if you cut corners and make a mistake, that people are going to put you on blast all over the world, then maybe they're a little more careful. Maybe they don't go into these investigations with tunnel vision. Maybe they don't do suspect-driven investigations, and instead they do evidence-driven investigations like they're trained to do. So that's the best we can do, I think, is awareness and to put every police officer and prosecutor out there on notice that we're watching. And as much as that would be a good place to end the show, Bob, we got one more thing to get to. CrimeCon. Man, that was my mic drop. <laughs> I know. Oh, yeah. But yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. So CrimeCon, everybody. It's that time of year again. I don't know how many of you guys. I know we had a ton of Truth and Justice listeners at CrimeCon in Nashville last year. Uh, I told you guys last year and the year before, it's the most amazing weekend of my year. Uh, it's only been two years. This is the third year that there's been a CrimeCon. And it is so much fun. And this year, it's going to be in New Orleans. And it's uh, June 6th through 7th this year. So it's a Friday through Sunday in New Orleans, Louisiana. It's going to be an amazing time. So this is, for those of you that haven't been before, this is what CrimeCon is. Like everybody who you love listening to, watching on TV, or reading from true crime is going to be there, most likely. And I can guarantee you most of the big true crime podcasts that you like to listen to are there. And in my opinion, that's the coolest part about CrimeCon is the accessibility that we have to be around you guys, and you guys had to be around us. Every day of CrimeCon, they have what they call Podcast Row, and all of the true crime podcasters have this huge, long hallway full of tables of all the true crime podcasts that come, and you just get to walk around and hang out with them, meet them, get some merch, take photos, chat with us. Uh, we usually do several meetups while we're there, where you know after, you know after the day's work, we go and hang out at the bars and the hotels and stuff. And then you have presentations happening the whole time. Jim Clemente and his team at XG Productions is always doing some awesome, informative uh, seminars. And, and they do a lot of interactive stuff. It's really cool. Uh, Nancy Grace was there last year. Aphrodite Jones has been there. Uh, Ken Kratz was there last year. So just, I mean, it's just, it's just everybody you can think of from true crime in one place. I gave a big speech last year in the West Memphis 3 case. I always try to push for my table to be next to... Nick and the Captain from True Crime Garage and Aaron and Justin from Gen Y. So we can kind of hang out and drink beer and cause trouble during Podcast Row. So anyway, June June 7th through 9th in New Orleans. It's CrimeCon this year, and I want lots of you guys to go there. It's a great time for we got us all to hang out, and, and I promise you, you'll have a wonderful time. And they actually gave us a code uh, for our listeners to get a discount. And so if you are interested in going to CrimeCon this year, you want to go to, uh, I think it's just crimecon.com, but whatever it is, crimecon.com, that sounds right. That sounds right, yeah. That sounds right, crimecon.com. But if you put in promo code TRUTH19, so like our show TRUTH in the year 2019, TRUTH19, they're going to give you 10% off of standard badges. So all you got to do, go to crimecon, probably.com, <laughs> and uh, get yourself some tickets to New Orleans in June. I will definitely be there. Mike's got some scheduling conflicts. He may or may not be there. Up in the air, but it's always a good time. Yep. But I'll definitely be there. Becky will be with me for sure. All your favorite true crime podcasts in New Orleans at CrimeCon. You can use code TRUTH19 to get 10% off of your purchase of a badge. And one last thing before we go, 
we are getting dangerously close to $10,000 for the uh, reward fund uh, to find Jim Melgar's killer on GoFundMe. If you haven't given yet, please consider. If all of you go in and just donate a dollar or two, it will equal a lot. And the bigger reward we can offer, the more likely I believe someone's going to come forward with some information. One more time, that website is GoFundMe.com slash Jim Melgar. GoFundMe.com slash Jim Melgar to donate to the reward fund to find Jim Melgar's killer. And after all that, uh, that now is all we have for today. Unfortunately, don't have a big mic drop for you with uh, some cool music because I wasted it five minutes ago. Yeah, you did. So uh, that's it. Thanks, guys, for tuning in. Make sure you tune in this Sunday. We're going to cover point of error number three from the appeals brief, which is going to be covering jury misconduct. And you're not going to want to miss this one. I promise. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Thank you to Amanda Meyer with Willow Photo and Design for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. Our banner images and type font across all of our logos was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Britta Bliss, Sarah Colby, Rachel Timberman, and Liz Rose. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to Patreon.com slash TruthAndJustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 per month, and we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a 5-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. And like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at truthjusticepod, and my personal Twitter handle is at bobruftruth. And for more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at truthjusticepod. And don't forget, we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on the case. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. Watch me spin some gold here, Mike. You ready for this? You guys ready for this? I'm going to spin some gold. When you guys hear this Friday... It won't sound like I'm in a shitty mood at all. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. I am in a terrible mood. Oh, wait, they'll figure it out if I say that, won't they? They'll figure it out. I got to pretend that I'm not in a terrible mood. Right. Here we go. Try again. Take two. Take two. Oh, please. Action. <laughs> Take two. Take two.
Okay, here we go. Yeah, I was going to tell you, it just slowed down. You know, you can bring it back together, but you went fast and you hammered it. You nailed it. Had to go. Nailed it. Go hard in the yard. That's my guy. Hard in the yard. You took that shit right to Pound Town. What? (laughs) (laughs) It's a term we use when we're playing darts. If you uh, ever played cricket before, uh, if you. If you close something out and then you and then you start getting points on that, we say Pound Town. You taking me to Pound Town. We say it just like that too. <laughs> yeah, we really to, do. What you taking me to Pound Town? <laughs> Bridgman, Michigan. Here we go. Hey, I gotta take a little action, Jackson. It's back. I'm bringing it back on you. Okay, what did I say? <laughs> I had something about that. God dang it. Okay. Jim Mugger's killer and then go. So all the way back there. <laughs> way back. We're going in the way back machine. Okay. <laughs> Say goodbye to the dish and hello to Sky Stream, the new way to get Sky over Wi-Fi. So you can get unmissable Sky shows like The Last of Us and Succession, as well as Netflix and Discovery Plus and loads more, all in one subscription for £26 a month. Oh, and next day delivery with no upfront fee. Skystream. TV simplified. Head to sky.com. Requires Skystream and broadband minimum speed 10 megabits per second. 18 month minimum term. Cut off times apply for next day delivery. Excludes bank holiday. 18 plus terms apply. <laughs>